you've probably, like me, lost track of how many different talent shows are on television or streaming on some channel or station these days. Maybe you're one of those that, that watches it as it comes out each week, or maybe you just periodically catch a highlight online of some talent or performance that, that stood out. But they're all pretty much the same. You see a lot of the, the same types of performances or acts on those talent shows. A lot of singing, a lot of dancing, some magic tricks. And, and every once in a while, there's this performance or this act that you kind of watch and you tilt your head and you maybe scratch it a little bit and you're not sure if you're supposed to be impressed or confused or grossed out or what it was. But we're all familiar with these, these shows and when we see somebody who is exceptional in their, their craft or their profession, amazing and, and, and impressive as it is to see all of the neat things that, that human beings are able to do, we're impressed with them while at the same time we find ourselves speaking in the back of our minds, man, I could never, never be able to do something like that. That's real talent. That's real skill. I wonder if over the course of this series you have felt the same way, if you have expressed that or found yourself repeating that, that same mantra in your own head. I could never do that. I know, of course, that there are all kinds of escapes, all kinds of temptations that seem to hope uh, to offer me this false hope and an escape that only traps me more. And I know they're not good for me, but, but no matter what they are, it, it's not so easy to overcome them. Whether it's the, the chemical dependency we talked about, finding escape in, in alcohol or, or prescription or illegal drugs. Or if it's not that, it's that inclination to go to our safe place and, and shop and purchase and buy and have more stuff and consume, which is an empty hamster wheel as well. If it's not that, we look to God's gift of, of sex with very clear boundaries and we use that as an escape or, or a place for immediate gratification or relief. And if not, we're chasing after success and status for escape for purpose and, and meaning. And we might know that those things are, are not helping us, that they're harmful to us. Not that they're inherently wrong, but when we go to them instead of Jesus, then there's, there's real problems. But it's not so easy just to say, I know something is bad or not good for me and to, to overcome it. So we find ourselves sometimes, even if we know, saying, I just can't do it. Well, this morning... Paul has some words of advice and counsel and direction to help us as we continue avoiding these other escapes. But before we get to Paul's words that we just shared with the, the children that you heard in our second reading, I want to address that, that boulder-sized barrier that sometimes gets in the way of these words from Paul sinking in. And it's that, that phrase that we already talked about, I can't. I don't remember where, where Gina and I came across it, and we haven't always been consistent, but as our, our children have and continue to grow, and they, they take on new challenges, and, and they have new experiences, like any other children, they try something for the first time, and they get frustrated, and they'll say, I can't. I can't do it. And we've tried to tack on one word to the end of that phrase that we hope will make a difference. Yet. I can't yet. 
But just because you can't do it today doesn't mean that with more work and more effort you won't be able to do it tomorrow. Rarely does a child pick up a bike and, and ride successfully the first time. What child picks up an instrument and is brilliant on it the very first time they pick it up? Nobody. So we try to reassure them to say, stick with it, keep trying things. Just because you can't now doesn't mean you won't be able to later on. So I can't. Yet. I don't know why that seems to be one of those things that is okay to tell kids, but as adults, we don't permit ourselves to say the same thing. We are our own worst critics. We are the hardest on ourselves, and we quickly write something off. If I haven't been able to do this in the past, then that's just who I am, and I'll never get out of this rut. I'm never going to get beyond it. I mean, we can talk about escape. Why, why should I think that hearing one sermon on it is going to change my behavior if it hasn't? Well, here's the thing. That's, that's unrealistic. And it's not only unrealistic to think that change could happen just like that, but it's also unfair because it fails to recognize who you are. You know who you are, right? A sinner. And you know what that means, that you're a sinner? It means that you're really good at sinning. And I don't say that to, to make light of sin or its consequences or how God feels about it. But I do bring it up because sin is something that we can talk very real, in a very real way, very frank way, because sin is damaging. Sin does cause harm and conflict and pain and suffering in our worlds and in our lives. But sometimes we as Christians feel like we can't talk about sin in a real way because, well, when I'm around other Christians, I know I'm not supposed to, and so we don't, we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to address it. But then that fails to, to recognize that, that sin is so damaging how easily it can, over time, carve a, a rut in our life through, through certain habits and practices over time, and those are not easily overcome. That kind of, of damage that sin does doesn't just switch overnight. See, sin isn't like this, this visitor that likes to just stop by for, for an occasional visit and then be on its way. It wants to take up residence in your heart and in your life. So let's be realistic about what sin is. But let's go a step further and let's also rejoice that that's not the only label that applies to us. In fact, it's not even the most powerful label that is attached to us by God himself because though he knows our sin, he chooses to see us differently, not just as sinners, but more importantly, as saints. Those who have been forgiven. Those who have been washed, those who have been set apart, those who have been sanctified and made holy for his purposes. Now, why does, why does he choose that? It's not that God loves us because we're so lovable. God loves us because God is love, and that's what he does. He loves you and me. So because we are washed and we are forgiven and we are sanctified, we can be real about the damage that this sin and these faulty escapes bring into our lives, but we can also then be real about the fact that if we think we're going to overcome them on our own, we're going to be climbing uphill, aren't we? In fact, look at, at Paul's first encouragement from these words of Ephesians. It's true, you're right, when you conclude that you'd never be able to change that pattern of behavior, that escape that you are bent toward or inclined toward. But that doesn't mean that God can't. 
You see where Paul directed our attention in our lesson from Ephesians? What's the very first thing he says in in verse 10? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You're right when you say you can't do it, but God can, which is why Paul doesn't say, look inside yourself, try harder, be better. It's there, a little bit of self-help, a little bit of encouragement, and you can do it. He doesn't lead people astray at all in that way. He says, no, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Not your own. And when we are, are willing to acknowledge that God can do what we cannot do, then we can embrace and welcome this picture, this illustration that Paul paints for us of, of this full armor of God and how he has protected us and how he does equip us from escape. Look at the rest of the, the section and the picture that, that Paul uses, the different phrases He talks about, first of all, having that full armor of God so that we might stand our ground and stand firm first with what? The belt of truth. Then the breastplate of righteousness. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel. The shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. The sword of the Spirit. Now we could, I suppose, spend a lot of time on each one of those pieces of armor and talk about how they protect a soldier, but that's not really Paul's point. He's not really concerned that you understand the picture of a Roman soldier or how each of those pieces of armor protect you. Rather, what he's focused on or more concerned about is the spiritual blessing that is attached to each piece of armor. And he repeats here that this is the full armor of God. This isn't like partial. This isn't like here's a few things you can wear if you want to be on guard or defend yourself against those evil enemies that I just pointed out. But he says that in putting on this armor, you have everything that you need to defend against him. Take just those spiritual blessings. First of all, the belt of of truth. You see how equipped we are if we have the truth that comes to us from from God's word. And, And how comforting that is when we don't know where truth is, when people talk about living your truth and your truth, when truth is twisted and truth is relative, and we don't know if the medical community, we don't know if the government, we don't know if science, we don't know where truth is. Well, we do. We have truth to guard us, to protect us. This is reliable. This does not change that belt of truth in a world that doesn't know anymore what truth actually is. So when the devil tries to twist and connive and deceive We have truth. Paul goes on to say that's not all you have, the breastplate of righteousness. Another of the favorite arguments or attacks from the devil is to convince you that you're not good enough. He's not wrong. But the path that he he provides to, to remedy that situation is wrong. Try harder, be better, be obedient, be good enough, work righteousness, earn your way into heaven. To that, God says, I've given you the breastplate of righteousness, which is rightness with God, which the Bible is very clear is not something that is earned, but comes to us by faith in Jesus Christ. So against the devil's attacks that you're not good enough and you need to try harder, we have the armor that says, I have Christ's righteousness, and that is sufficient. I don't ever have to doubt if I'm good enough because I know Jesus was and is good enough for me. But you know that the devil's not done with just those attacks. He goes on. And when when Paul talks about feet that are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, 
Isn't that one of the specialties of, of the devil? To sow seeds of discord and disharmony and chaos in this world? H- haven't we all experienced that? Not just in the last 18 months, but, but our whole lives. If we're thinking that peace is going to come in the absence of conflict or when somebody in the world figures it out for us, we're always going to be filled with chaos and disappointment. But, but notice that Paul attaches peace to the gospel that we have. The gospel that assures us of grace and forgiveness that always leaves peace in its wake. You know, the devil's not done with his attack. So Paul assures us that in addition to that gospel of peace, we have a shield of faith. What does faith do? Faith receives. Faith clings to God's promises. The devil likes to get us to doubt, to wonder, to question, Faith has none of it. Faith doesn't need reason or a rational mind to understand all of God's promises or everything he's laid out to us in his word. Faith is the shield that says, I will protect you from everything. Where your reason, where your your intellect falls short and don't understand my ways, rest in and rely on your faith and hold to my promises through that and you'll be fine. Then we have the helmet of salvation. Have you ever felt guilt? Have you ever questioned where you stand? Have you ever wondered if if you're really going to make it into heaven? Have you ever felt the, the devil's efforts at trying to convince you that the battle has actually turned, that he has swayed it in his direction, that the tide has turned and he is he is pulling ahead, that he's going to maybe just pull out this victory? The helmet of salvation says otherwise. You've been saved, you are saved. That's the work of of God. He's already done it. As I said to to the little ones up front here, the devil can't undo that. To be saved is to say your name is written in the book of life. He can't change that. He can say that. God can say that your name is written in the book of life because the battle's already been won and victory has already been credited to you and to me. You notice something in, in common about all of these pieces of armor so far to this point. They're all, they're all very defensive in nature, aren't they? And, and on top of that, Paul emphasizes and repeats the importance of standing firm. Stand, because you have all of these, these pieces of armor to guard and protect you. But then, then we have one last, thing that he po- one last thing that he points out in this, the final section here. After the helmet of salvation, he says, you also have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What's different about that weapon? A sword isn't really for defense, is it? A sword is given to go on the attack, to inflict, to harm. It's an offensive weapon, isn't it? So, does this fall in in line with the old adage that everybody is familiar with? The best offense is a great defense, right? Seeing if anybody is shaking their head, nodding their head up and down. Good, you're not, because I said it backwards. The best defense is a great offense. Because in theory, if you are on offense, if you are controlling the ball, if you are in possession of it, then you don't have to worry about how to defend the other team. Now, does that apply Spiritually, now maybe you think it's a stretch because all of the armor, most of the armor that Paul talked about is defensive in nature. And there is a place for that. 
But doesn't that give us the confidence to then also wield that sword of the Spirit? Which is not weak, by, by the way. Do you know what Paul said about that sword of the Spirit in his letter to the Romans? Chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that's the word that he's talking about, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The power of God. And then the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 11, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. I'm sorry, verse 12. For the, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is the weapon that you and I have been given, the word of God, to go on the offensive, to go on the attack. And it is more powerful than, than any bodybuilder, more powerful than any monster truck or heavy-duty machinery, more powerful than anything in all the galaxy. And God says, this is what I have given you, not just to, to stand back and play it safe, but to go on the attack. What would that look like in, in your life, in your home, in our congregation? if we recognized and took to heart the reality that we have been given a weapon to go on the offensive. We have been given the word of God. We don't have to stand back and just be a punching bag to all of the devil's attacks. We have the most powerful weapon that anybody could ever wield in the word of God. In your own life, what would that look like? Would there be more joy and more peace to wield this more actively what would your mood look like? Would you find yourself living in the joy of Jesus instead of being discouraged every time you read another headline? What would it look like in your household if you modeled that behavior for your spouse and for your children to see? If they saw how actively you were wielding this word of God and they made the connection that, that you are somebody that is filled with so much positivity, so much joy, so much peace that only comes from Jesus and his word that you actively wield? Would they want to follow in your footsteps? Would you see that, that division, even under our own roof, can be healed with, with unity and reconciliation if this word were taken on the offense more? What would a congregation look like when it is filled with soldiers, with God's people, who don't just sit back and play it safe, but go on the attack with the word of God? I'll tell you what I think it would look like. I envision that it would, would include a, a few more remarks like one that we heard a couple of Sundays ago from, from a member that had been away from worship for a while and, and showed up and pointed out they didn't recognize a whole lot of the faces here. I envision that it would look a lot like what's going to happen very shortly when we welcome another new member into our church family here this morning. I envision that this would be a place filled with smiles and joy and happiness and that it would be very attractive to the world outside, that this would actually be the place they could come to for escape and for real rest. That's what I envision it looking like if we decided to go on the offensive with the most powerful thing that anybody on this planet can wield, the Word of God. Today and the, the previous Sundays over this series, we have emphasized and focused on the need for each of us personally 
to run away from those worldly escapes and to escape instead to Jesus for the real rest that we have in his forgiveness and his grace. Next Sunday, we shift our focus. For the, for the next four Sundays in a new series called Simple Evangelism, our goal, our desire, is to take that rest that is ours freely and fully in Christ and to explore what it looks like to bring that rest to the world around us. Pray that you'll stick around and, and don't miss out as God now shifts our attention, not just to the self-care of finding rest in him, but then bringing that rest to as many others as we can as well. Amen.